0: 1 Kings chapter 17, we begin in verse 1 And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence and turn thee eastward and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning And bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. And then, if you would look just a couple of pages over to chapter 19 and verse 10, this is now a different setting. This is Elijah, many believe, in the very cave of Mount Horeb, the very place where Moses had ascended, the very mountain where the Lord had descended and given the law. And we read in verse 10, this is Elijah now speaking, and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And we might as well jump down to verse 14 as well where Elijah basically repeats the same thing. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down on altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to this reading from his word for his name's sake. You're probably aware if you read your Bibles and you read Old Testament history, that the prophet Elijah certainly stands out in Scripture as one of the boldest and most courageous prophets in all of Scripture. Think about it for a moment based on what we just read from chapter 17, and this is the chapter That introduces us to Elijah. Think about the audacity of coming out of nowhere, a complete stranger, one who has spent most of his time in obscurity in the wilderness, and then quite suddenly, like a bolt of lightning, he comes, uninvited and unannounced, into the presence of a king who's identified as one of the worst kings in Israel throughout the course of their history, to that moment and even beyond. And this prophet makes a very bold proclamation, as the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. The nerve of the man, I suppose many would have thought, who had been on hand for that occasion... Or think of the challenge that he boldly places to the prophets of Baal in the next chapter, chapter 18. Here's his words there. Let them therefore give us two bullocks and let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God that answereth by fire let him be God. Again, tremendous courage. In the sense of audacity that this one man would take on 450 prophets of Baal on that occasion. But lest we think too highly, too far and above uh, our imaginations when we think about Elijah in terms of his courage, James reminds us in that chapter we read earlier, James chapter 5, that Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. As bold and daring and courageous as this prophet appeared, yet he was but a man at the end of the day. And the narrative in 1 Kings chapter 19 certainly provides the evidence for James making such a statement that Elijah was in fact very human He was vulnerable to discouragement and he became fearful for his life when he was threatened by King Ahab's wife, the wicked Queen Jezebel. So in chapter 19, beginning in verse 2, and this follows right on the heels of Elijah calling fire down from heaven. We read, then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. She's making reference to the 450 prophets of Baal that had been executed. Basically, Jezebel is saying to Elijah, "Uh, you're going to be slain the same way tomorrow about this time. We go on to read, and when he, Elijah, saw that, He arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. We certainly recognize then, don't we, in this prophet's life that he knew mountaintop highs in his experience of God and God's power as well as deep valleys of despair to the point that he became suicidal in his attitude, requested that God take his life, And because of these highs and lows, and because he was a man subject to like passions as we are, Elijah is worth studying for very practical reasons. But there's also a theological reason that the narrative of Elijah needs to be studied. When those prophets of Baal gathered together and Elijah took them on, He did so for a reason that is repeated again and again throughout the Bible. When the fire fell and the Lord manifested himself through that fire, we have the account of all the people falling on their faces and proclaiming, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The lesson seems very simple, doesn't it? Very basic. And yet it's a lesson, I fear, that we all have need to learn and relearn because we're prone to forget the simple but absolute truth that the Lord is God. And in this dispensation in which we have the fullness of the revelation of God's word, we need the lesson driven home to our hearts again and again that Christ is God. Very simple, and yet so easy to lose sight of when we tend to walk by sight rather than by faith. So what I'd like to do this morning, and maybe for a few more weeks as the Lord leads, is to study this prophet Elijah. And what we'll do this morning, very simply, is to answer the question, why? Why study the prophet Elijah? I'm going to give you three reasons why we need to study this prophet. The first one is because of the setting of Elijah, because of the day in which he lived, because of the circumstances in which he ministered. A.W. Pink and his studies on Elijah gives a very vivid picture of what things were like in Israel leading up to Elijah. Listen to what he writes. Now, Elijah appeared on the stage of public action during one of the very darkest hours of Israel's sad history. Already, I'm thinking we can relate. One of the darkest hours in Israel's sad history. Are we not in a dark hour today. He is introduced to us at the beginning of 1 Kings 17, and we have but to read through the previous chapters in order to discover what a deplorable state God's people were then in. Israel had grievously and flagrantly departed from Jehovah, and that which directly opposed him had been publicly set up, Never before had the favored nation sunk so low. Fifty-eight years had passed since the kingdom had been rent in two following the death of Solomon. During that brief period, no less than seven kings had reigned over the ten tribes in the north, and all of them, without exception, were wicked men. It seems like the wickedness of one would be greater than the other as you read that progression of history. Painful indeed is it to trace their sad course and still more tragic to behold is how there has been a repetition of the same in the history of Christendom. A.W. Pink, he was on the scene of time until the early 1950s. So he's... uh, relatively recent, and he's recognizing even back in his day, which we would look on as being so much more conservative than our day, and yet he is able to come to the conclusion even back in the early to mid-50s that the days then were as dark and gloomy and spiritually decadent as the days of Elijah. He goes on to note the first of those seven kings was Jeroboam. Concerning him, we read that he made two calves of gold and said unto them, that is the people of Israel, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. You know the story if you've read your Old Testament. Two golden calves, One put in Bethel, the other put in Dan. You don't have to travel all the way to Jerusalem. We're going to make your religion more convenient. I'm especially struck by Jeroboam's words here at the end of the quote from A.W. Pink when Jeroboam says, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. That's in 1 Kings Chapter 12 and verse 28, where we read these words, Whereupon the king took counsel, and made two calves of gold, and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. So false worship is established. False gods are in place. And yet, do you see how Jeroboam is still trying to tie this religion to the true and living God? These be thy gods that brought thee out of the land of Egypt. So he's bringing Jehovah into the mix here. He's just altering the way that Jehovah would be worshipped. And so everything that Jeroboam does is designed to make the religion of the northern tribes more convenient. It's no wonder Pink would say that there has been a repetition of the same in the history of Christendom. Now, Pink very well may have had the apostasy of the nation of Israel in mind, and in that respect, there has indeed many times over been a repetition of Israel's history. In his monumental work, The History of Protestantism, J.A. Wiley devotes a chapter to explaining how the Roman Catholic Church could evolve into the tyrannical monster that would rule over whole kingdoms. He attributes the rise of Catholicism to the inability of men to take in blessings so full and so free as what were given in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men, it would seem, just don't have large enough hearts to take in what's full and what's free. There has to be a price for us to pay, and there must be a priesthood established to oversee the payment of that price. Paul's epistle to the Galatians shows that as far back as apostolic times, men tended to replace the fullness and freeness of the gospel with some form of a works-righteousness system. Such is the state of man's depraved heart that he must, in his pride, think that he is obligated to contribute something to his standing with God. D.G. Hart, in a book he wrote to commemorate the history of Presbyterianism in America, traces the same kind of spiritual phenomenon. It's not exactly a flattering commemoration that Hart presents in that book. If you ever want to know why in some circles the word Presbyterianism is considered to be synonymous with the word apostasy, well, read D.G. Hart's book. It's entitled seeking a better country, 300 years of American Presbyterianism. And he tells the story of the fall of Princeton, the rising of Bible deniers, Orthodox deniers. And uh, like I say, not a flattering commemoration that he gives, but a true one, I have to say. And I think I do understand full well why The word Presbyterianism is, in some circles, not in all circles, but in many, it's regarded as a synonym for apostasy. But the thing I have in mind when I read Jeroboam's words to the nation of Israel is something other than apostasy, something I suppose you could say inevitably leads to apostasy. When Jeroboam says to Israel, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem, we find Jeroboam describing what has come to characterize religion in America right up to this present day. What is Jeroboam doing when he sets up the golden calves, one in Dan, another in Bethel? Basically, he's establishing a religion of convenience. Too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. So I'm going to make your religion more convenient for you. Isn't that Christianity in America today? Especially during the pandemic of COVID-19. I haven't taken the time to research the number crunchers, but I've heard it said from numerous sources, from various uh, backgrounds, that many people left the churches they were attending because of COVID, and they've never come back. They've discovered that it's much easier, and I suppose in some of their minds much safer, to tune into church instead of go to church. Much more comfortable to do church in your sleepwear with a cup of coffee in your hand than to go through the pains of getting up, getting ready, and have to be somewhere at a specific time. Oh, what a daunting challenge to American culture today. We live in a culture, don't we, that's addicted to convenience, We're used to having everything instantly and everything catered to us. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I acknowledge that there are people that need to take protective measures because they fall into high-risk categories when it comes to various diseases. I get that. I'm not denying that. But there are others who simply don't have a church to go to because of how widespread apostasy has become, I understand them too. I don't want to come across as if I'm not aware of such things, but on the other hand, I have no doubt that there are many professing Christians that could be and should be in church, but are not, because it's more convenient to do church in a different way. In such times as these, It's the voice of a prophet that's needed. In his introduction to Elijah, A.W. Pink has a very insightful thought about the office of a prophet in general. If I may quote from him again, The office which Elijah filled supplies an important key to an understanding of the times in which he lived and the character of his mission. He was a prophet. In fact, one of the most remarkable pertaining to that divine order. Now, there is a real and marked difference between a servant of God and a prophet of God. For while all his prophets are servants, yet not all of his servants are prophets. Prophecy always presupposes failure and sin. God only sent forth one of his prophets in a time of marked declension and departure of the people from himself. I have to admit I hadn't really thought of the office of a prophet in that light, but I think A.W. Pink is spot on in that analysis. He goes on to note, quoting now 2nd Peter 1:19, We have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So there is a sense in which this prophetic ministry does carry forward into our day and age. It carries forward through the more sure word that God has inspired and preserved and that comes to us and that guides and directs us and that also warns us. Oh, may God grant to us then the needed grace to give heed to his word, even when it may not seem convenient to do so. So why the study of Elijah? Well, one very good reason for such a study is because we live in times that are not altogether from Elijah's time. Another reason for the study of Elijah would be, secondly, because of the guidance that Elijah can provide during such times. Oh, this man's example can teach us a lot. I mentioned in my introduction that Elijah was a man who knew the highs and lows of life. And if there could be found in the narrative of Elijah a key verse that I think you could say governed his life during those highs and lows and during those days of spiritual declension and apostasy, that verse would be the one that I added to our reading. It's found in chapter 19 and verse 10. It's repeated in verse 14, where Elijah says to the Lord, I have been very jealous For the Lord God of hosts. I think you could probably take that statement and say there's something of a key statement pertaining to the prophet. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. Now, if ever there was a statement to express my desire for my own life, my desire for this church family, it would be a statement like this about being jealous for the Lord. But what does that mean, to be jealous for the Lord? We usually think of jealousy as something that's carnal and undesirable. We view it as an intense suspicion of someone, or we may view it even as a form of covetousness. We become jealous of someone who has things we don't have and want. One of the worst things about this upcoming holiday season is that it may provoke a spirit of carnal jealousy. Why do other people get Christmas presents that I myself wish I got? You ever fought with that thought as a child or as an adult? And uh, I'll leave it to you to search your hearts. Well, this is obviously not the kind of jealousy that Elijah possessed for the Lord God of hosts. And to understand Elijah's jealousy and the kind of jealousy we should have, we need to note that there is a sense in which God himself is said to be a jealous God. The second commandment, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4, reads like this, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, And later in the book of Exodus, God assigns his jealousy to be one of his names. Exodus 34, verse 14, Thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Imagine that. Have you ever contemplated that? When you think of All the names of the Lord, I suppose we'll have to take this into account during our prayer meeting studies at some point as we've been going through the names and attributes of God and how they contribute to our praying. I guess this is one we don't want to leave out since the Lord himself says his name is jealous, being a jealous God. Now, knowing as we do, that our God is without sin in any way, shape, or form, we may safely conclude then that there is a kind of jealousy that can be correctly thought of to be virtuous and desirable. That was the kind of jealousy that Elijah possessed. He could not stand it that false gods were being worshipped. That what was due to God alone was being given to false gods. And it's this this same kind of jealousy that you and I should possess, especially in times of spiritual declension and apostasy. This is that jealousy that, very simply put, becomes sensitive for the honor of God. We want God to be honored. We can't stand it when he's not. That's what it means to be jealous for his honor. We hate it when he's not honored. We hate it when his name is profaned. We can't stand it when his name is blasphemed. We can't stand it when his ways are trampled underfoot and denied. We see our God and our Savior as holy. We take it to heart that He is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on sin. And yet it seems, doesn't it, that sin is all He sees when He looks upon our nation and our land. This is the kind of jealousy, you could say, that characterizes those who know how to pray Our Father, which art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. There's a petition that reflects jealousy for God's honor. Lord, I want your name to be hallowed. And you know, that's the kind of petition uh, that you can take before God's throne and apply it far and wide. Lord, I want your name to be hallowed in my own heart. I want to sanctify your name. I want to revere and treasure your name. And not only, Lord, do I want this in my heart, I want it in my home. I want it in my children's hearts. And I want it in my church. I want it in my city. I want it in this nation in which I live. O oh, Lord, hallowed may be thy name. That is a reflection of being jealous for God and for his honor. And this presupposes that we know that the name of Christ is exalted above every name. And for us to hallow that name means that in our hearts we do now what everyone will do eventually. We bow to that name. We revere that name. And we can't stand it to hear when such a name is profaned and abused. You know, here is where witnessing for Christ can be done as much by what you don't go along with as much as by what you actually say. Do you hear his name abused and profaned and used in blasphemous ways all around you, where you work, where you shop, in your neighborhood? Well, don't go along with it. And certainly don't participate in it. And while you may not be able to call down fire from heaven upon those that take the name of the Lord in vain, you'll certainly discover, if you haven't already, that you'll stand out as a Christian as much uh, by what you refrain from saying and doing as what you actually say or do. And in fact, if you would find yourself inclined to profane his name, it would be much better for you not to say anything about him. Because you won't be taken seriously. You'll be seen as being as profane as the world itself. I remember from my unsaved years how I could keep up with the worst of men when it came to my profane language I could probably, to use the slang term, make a sailor blush. And then very early on, as a new Christian, it was as if the Lord unstopped my ears one day. And perhaps for the first time in my life, I could hear the way I was speaking. And I became appalled with myself for my language. And my language changed. When I was a Paul, I can't speak this way of my Lord. Um, He's my Redeemer. He's my Savior. I owe Him everything. I can't use His name in a profane way. And when you're jealous for God's honor, then you won't find yourself going along with all the cultural trends that are being foisted upon a sinful nation. You don't have to buy into sodomite marriages. you don't have to buy in to gender confusion, and you don't have to buy in to critical race theory, which is just a form of atheistic Marxism. You would think that would be obvious, but strangely enough, a number of churches are buying into those things. And you're hearing of splits everywhere because of that. And where the philosophy of a church's ministry is to be as accommodating to everyone and everything, it comes as no surprise that a number of churches go along with every cultural trend that bursts on the scene. And the usual explanation for such accommodation is that those churches want to win Souls for Christ. Well, that's a noble ambition to have, one we all should have. But what they fail to take into account is there's actually something more important than winning souls for Christ. And that's being jealous for the honor of the God and Savior that we worship and serve. So why a study of the life of Elijah It's because the life of Elijah can guide us how we should be during times of declension and apostasy. Let me mention one more reason for the study of the life of Elijah. And that's because Elijah so clearly shows us our need. Elijah shows us our need. How many of you can relate to the sentiment of the psalmist when he says in Psalm 42, verses 3 and 4, My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. Oh my, how we ought to be moved to tears when we are being challenged that way. Where is the Lord your God? Moses came before Pharaoh, said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, who's who's your God that I should fear you and uh, and let the Israelites go? And, And we certainly see it today, don't we? Where is your God? If your God was true and real and just, surely he would have smitten me down for my blasphemy by now. I've heard it said, I don't know how much truth is in the story, that the French philosopher Voltaire uh, would seek to prove to a crowd that God doesn't exist and then he would shake his fist toward heaven and he would say, I challenge you, God, to smite me down. If you're up there and you hear me, I defy you and I challenge you to smite me down right now. And when nothing happens, he concludes, God must not exist. Look what I did and look what I got away with. I would love to be in such a crowd to hear that kind of a challenge. I would say to Voltaire, "You want to prove to me that God doesn't exist and defy his curse and don't ever die. Live forever. Then you'll prove to me he doesn't exist, that his curse doesn't have any grip on you. All you've proven is that he's not a puppy dog at the end of your leash. But uh, be that as it may, we can't stand it when they say continually to us, where is thy God? God had certainly withdrawn himself in the days of Elijah. His ways had long been forsaken and replaced with false gods and false religion. But then Elijah would burst onto the scene and call for famine and drought. And we're going to have to look at that because that is very much in keeping with his jealousy for God's honor. No rain except at my word. Uh, Does does the man have no heart for souls or for, uh, you know, human suffering? Well, we'll get to that in due course. But anyway, when Elijah would burst onto the scene call for famine and drought, and before he was through, he would be calling fire down from heaven. I think the account of fire from heaven in 1 Kings 18 is a bit like the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit descended from heaven, and there were tongues of fire above the heads of the apostles. In both instances, apostasy had been strong, but in the end, God showed himself to be stronger. And while I'm not suggesting that there needs to be a literal sense in which we call fire down from heaven, there does need to be a sense in which God simply reveals himself to be God to a disobedient and gainsaying people. Elijah, therefore, shows us our need, and he teaches us what to do in such times of need we're going to have to pay very particular attention to the prayer life of Elijah. The things he prayed for were not things that we sometimes think we should pray for. I cited you that example already. But on the other hand, he was able to pray down fire from heaven. He was able to pray for the rains to be restored to the land. And what we learn from him is that our need and the need of our sin-sick and spiritually barren land is for God to manifest himself again in such a way that everyone knows this is God. That's what happens in revival, you know. God is perceived to be the true and living God. There is a sense of that that just isn't there in barren times. He is known experientially and not just in theory. And in some respects, it's a terrifying experience, but also it's a gracious experience when the confession is made in broad fashion that the Lord is God. The Lord is God. We read from James chapter 5 that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much and then reference is made in the very next verse to Elijah. Oh, how we need to learn to emulate the prophet in that regard. So why a study of Elijah? Well, I think the answer is pretty plain and simple. We live in the same kind of days, spiritually speaking. And we need the guidance of Elijah's example. And we need the power that Elijah had near the end of his days in this world when a chariot would take him to heaven and he would pass his mantle to his successor, Elisha, Elisha would take that mantle, he would roll it up, he would smite the waters of Jordan, and he would pose a challenge to God. It's the same challenge we would do well to bring to God when Elisha would say, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? May we so be instructed to approach God the same way, in the right frame of spirit, with the right petition on our lips. May we learn in the coming days how to bring that very challenge to God and how to live as we wait for the answer. Let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bow now in thy presence and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for including the life and ministry of this prophet in thy word. We believe, O Lord, that there are several good reasons for paying attention to what this prophet can teach us, both positively and negatively. And, O Lord, how we do pray today that we may be jealous for the name of the Lord our God, And that in that jealousy we would desire the promotion of his glory above all else. We note, O Lord, that the very first petition in the Lord's Prayer is hallowed be thy name. O may we catch on to the meaning of that petition and make it our own. And then strive for what we're praying for. So, Lord, hear our prayers now in Jesus' name. Amen.